We are in week two of our current sermon series called The Great Beyond, where we're looking at four questions that deal with um, the afterlife. Uh, Last week, Matt talked about the judgment. Today, we're on heaven. Next week is hell. And then week four is going to be the end times. And so uh, this morning, we're going to be talking about heaven. And when I say heaven, I mean, what comes to mind? I mean, if if you picture yourself there, what do you see? What do you hear? What do you smell? What do you experience? What do you think about when you think of what heaven is. And, you know, heaven is a topic that, um, it can, it's an incredibly exciting topic, and it's also an incredibly confusing topic at times, because a lot of people, me included, we have a lot more questions than we do answers about what heaven is. Um, and so I know for me personally, like, you know, if you'd asked me that question 10, 15 years ago, say, what is heaven like? This, the answer I would have given you is that heaven is something like it's, it's out there somewhere, like, I don't know, outer space or a different universe or who knows. It's somewhere out there, and heaven is a big ball of energy, and God's out there, and when we die, like, your little speck of energy on this earth rises up and gets us consumed in this ball of energy, and you live with God forever in this just thing out there somewhere like that. Okay, tracking. Like, that's what I would have thought, right? And a lot of people have kind of that idea of heaven as being somewhere else. Because the reason for that is is that a lot of people haven't heard a good solid teaching about what the Bible says about what heaven is, what we can can expect as believers um, about heaven. And so my goal this morning with this message is when you walk out of here this morning, I want you to, when somebody says, what is heaven, I want you to be able to have an accurate understanding of what the Bible teaches. So you don't think it's a ball in outer space, but you can actually understand what the Bible uh, teaches about heaven. And so we're going to be doing that by looking kind of at you know, those five questions you learn in elementary school, who, what, when, where, and why. That's kind of what we're going to be looking at this morning, those five questions uh, with what heaven is. And, you know, fair warning, this, may, this message may feel a little like academic at times. Um, and you kind of have to do that because you're going to see this is a really deep, incredibly complicated subject. And it's kind of like layered. So, you know, there's like in order to understand the second level or third level or fourth level, you kind of have to have a foundational knowledge as you build up to the big picture. And so we're going to be kind of looking at those steps as we go through uh, heaven this morning. So go with that. All right, let's pray. Uh, Dear God, Lord, I'm so thankful uh, that we have the message of heaven uh, to look forward to, Lord. And I pray this morning as we uh, dig into your word, God, that you speak to our hearts, speak to our minds. Just help us get um, out of this message what you want each of us individually to get, Lord. And we're so thankful for your son uh, that gave us the gift of life so that we can even uh, be thinking about these things uh, in this world, Lord. All these things in his name. Amen. All right, so the first question, and I know it's who, what, when, where, why. I'm not going to do it in that order because it just it makes better sense to do it in this other word. So just follow me. Okay, we're going to do when, where. Okay, when first. Sorry. We're going to do when first. So when I say when is heaven, you're like, when you die? I don't know, right? And that's not an incorrect answer, right? It is when you die. But if you look at the Bible, the question of when, when it comes to heaven, is a lot more nuanced. And just a little bit of background, there's a word I'm going to teach you, it's called eschatology. Eschatology is the study of the last things. And there are people who are eschatologists that spend their whole lives and whole careers with PhDs studying the last things, okay? They look at this stuff, and they study it all their lives, and they write a book, and the book comes out to say, I don't know, comma, but here's what I think, right? And then you have somebody else that has another, you know, PhD and has spent their whole life studying this stuff, and they write a book, and they say, I don't know, comma, but, and their but, it looks very different from the first person's but, right? And then you Google something about heaven, and you find, you know, Joe at blogspot.com that has a blog about heaven, and he can tell you, you know, when Jesus is coming back, where he's coming back, uh, you know, when, where, all the date, the time. He can even tell you what the weather's going to be like when Jesus comes back, because he knows all the answers, right? 
And I say all that to say that you're going to find there's a kind of a, a varying interpretations of what all this means. And, and, I mean, while there are things that are out there that we would not consider kind of orthodox teaching, the point is here is there's some diversity in thought about what this means. And there's, you can have differing opinions about heaven and the end times and stuff, and it's okay because, you know, it's not considered an essential doctrine for this church. It's okay if, you, if you've studied some of this stuff and you have a timeline. I'm talking about the timeline. That's the part I'm talking about. If your timeline looks different than the timeline I'm going to be talking about this morning, then there's some differences of interpretation, and that's okay. But I say all that for this point. So we're going to look at a timeline here. I told you it was academic. I even brought a laser pointer, okay? So, this is kind of the generally accepted church Protestant world timeline of how this all unfolds. Okay, so follow me here for a second. So you have Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, okay? When Jesus goes up to heaven, he gives us a mission. He says, okay, go therefore into all the nations, Make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded. I will be with you until the end of the age. Okay, that's our mission while Jesus is leaving. Jesus said, I'm going. I'm leaving this for you. You're in charge during this era. Okay? Not in charge. That's a terrible way to describe it. You're here. It's your mission, not in charge. We're not in charge. So this era is commonly referred to as the church era. We are living in the church era now. Jesus is going. The church is Jesus' body on earth. After the end of the church era... There's going to be seven years of like terrible pain, suffering that we commonly refer to as the tribulation. And then after that, after the seven years, is when we have Jesus' return. And when Jesus comes back, the Bible says, the Bible teaches, and we're going to talk a lot more about this like week four when we talk about the end times, but just bear with me. I'm, make, I'm telling you all this to make a point. So Jesus comes back, has his physical kingdom here on earth. We call that the millennial period or the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Jesus on earth, Okay. At the end of that, Satan makes one last-ditch last, last ditch attempt effort uh, to rebel, and God quickly puts that down. And then we have the final judgment, which is what Matt talked about last week. And then we have a new Jerusalem in, in our eternal state, which goes on for eternity. Okay, you follow me? That's kind of the generally accepted timeline. And I say all that to kind of make this one point. When you talk about the win of heaven, here's the question. Is what happens to believers who die in the church era, okay? Because the eternal millennial, or I'm sorry, our eternal state hasn't happened yet. It's in the future, okay? So what happens to Christians who die in this life or in this era? And what we know is we see in the Bible, there's, you see something that's called the intermediate state and then the eternal state. So first you have an intermediate state and then you have an eternal state. And so if you, we die in the church era, we go to this intermediate state before we go to our final eternal state, which is in Revelation 21, 22. We're going to talk about this. Are you lost yet? You're like, some people are looking at me like, it's like the first day of class, like, I'm in the wrong place. I, this is 401. I wanted 101. What is going on here? Just follow me, okay? I promise. I'm making a point here. And so when we talk about what the Bible teaches about heaven, you're going to see that there's a distinction between this place and this place. When we talk about the intermediate state and what it's like, I'm going to tell you what the Bible says about the intermediate state, okay? The first thing we know is that Jesus describes it as paradise in Luke 23, chapter 23, verse 43. And we also know from that ex same exchange that he has with the criminals when he's on the cross um, that it's immediate, okay? There's not, it's not purgatory. It's not you go somewhere else. We are immediately with Jesus in heaven when we die. Uh, we know that Paul says that our soul is going to be absent from our body, and we know um, 
that Paul described it as going to be with Christ. And that's it. That's all we know about the intermediate state. Okay, the Bible's not really clear about what happens when we die in the church era and we go to heaven. Okay? That's all we know. It's immediate. We go to Jesus, our body leaves our soul, and then that's it. Okay? But when we talk about the eternal state, when you start looking at the book of Revelation and all this incredible detail that you see in there, that's when you're talking about the eternal state and how that plays out at the end. And so I say all that to answer that question. I said, you know, ask the question, when is heaven? Well, when you die, yes, but it's a little more complicated than that. And I want to make all that point to say everything we talk about from here on out, I'm talking about the eternal state that comes down the road, okay? Because that's the one that we know a lot more about. And so um, we look at, in Revelation 21 and 22, and that's where we're going to be spending most of our time this morning. Let's talk about the book of Revelation. So Revelation, John was one of Jesus' disciples. John is the John that wrote the book of John. And John is in exile, and Jesus comes to him and basically says, hey, I want you to write down everything that I'm about to show you. And so in chapter 4 of Revelation, John sees an open door, and Jesus says, he says, he's an open door to heaven, and Jesus said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And so what follows in the rest of the book of Revelation is John's vision of what Jesus is showing him in heaven. Okay, so we talked about the when, let's talk about the who now. So who is in heaven? Believers of Christ will be there with glorified bodies dwelling with God. Okay, I'll break this down kind of one step at a time. First part is believers of Christ. Revelation 21 verse 27 says, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then earlier in chapter 20, verse 15, it says, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so the point here, these two verses make it clear. This heaven is not universal. It's not for everyone. Okay, You're either in or you're out. Heaven is for those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. And so how do you know whether your book, whether your name is in the book of life. How does your name get in the book of life? Is it because you do all the right things? Is it because you're, you do more right things than wrong things? Is that what it takes to get your name in the book of life? How do you get your name in the book of life? And what the Bible teaches is people who have their name in the book of life are those that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and those who that trust that Jesus' righteousness in place of their righteousness, because Jesus was perfect, he lived a perfect life, he died on the cross. We are not. We can trust in his righteousness to be our righteousness when it comes to God. That's how we get our name in the book of life. And my sincere hope this morning is that every person in this room and every person that's watching online know your name is in the book of life. Don't walk out of here this morning without knowing the answer to that question. Is my name in the book of life? You can know by placing your faith in Jesus right now, and you know your name is in there. And if, if you don't know the answer to that question, I would love to talk to you after the service. Come up and talk to me. I would love to have that conversation about how we can know that your name is in the book of life. Because I want everybody in here to, to take part in the awesome things that I'm getting ready to talk about in heaven. Okay, the next part is believers of Christ will be there with glorified bodies. So what does that mean? And so what the Bible teaches is that when we die, our soul leaves our body. See, our bodies are destined to die because of sin. But our soul goes on. And in the immediate state, we go back to be with Jesus. But here's the coolest thing out of all this, 
is if we go back to that timeline when it talks about Jesus coming back to earth in his millennial kingdom, the Bible teaches that we, at that point, we come back with Jesus to this earth, and we get new bodies, and we reign with Christ in his kingdom here on earth, okay? We have glorified new bodies. It says in Philippians chapter 4, verses 20 and 21, it says, But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform all our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 40 says, There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one of one kind. The splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon has another, and the stars another, and star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There's a ton of questions in terms of what, what our glorified bodies look like. And we see from other places in Scripture that the idea is that, like, if I'm, I'm Keith in this world, I'm going to be Keith in the next world, okay? I'm really hoping my glorified body is six foot two and has a six-pack. I don't know if that's the case, okay? But I'll be me in heaven. You'll be you in heaven, okay? And the last part of that is we'll be dwelling with God. Revelation 21.3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be there and be their God. And then later uh, in chapter 22, verse 4, it says that we will see his face, meaning we will see God's face. And this is incredible to think about, because if you think back to the book of Exodus, there's a story that we know where Moses asked God, says, God, show me your glory. And God says, you can't see my face. I'll show you my backside, but you can't see my face because no one can see my face and live. And the reason for that is because in this world, our bodies are tainted by sin. And sin separates us from God. God is holy, and we are not holy. Sin is not holy. And so sin cannot exist in the presence of God. Therefore, we cannot exist in the presence of God in terms of our bodies because they're tainted by sin. But in heaven, when we get our glorified bodies, they're perfect bodies. They're not tainted by sin. We can actually be in God's presence. We can look him right in the face and we can enjoy that. And that's incredible to think about. And the, la- or I'm sorry, and the next part is the where and the what. And so heaven is a physical place. Okay? In verse 1, this is after the final judgment that Matt talked about last week. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city of New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. This is the first point here is that heaven is not some metaphysical place in some other universe, okay? Heaven is not somewhere else. It's not somewhere up in the sky. It's not in outer space. It's none of that. Heaven is literally God bringing heaven back down to earth in a new heaven and a new earth here where we are. And listen to some of the descriptions of this place. First, it's huge. Verse 16 says, It's 12,000 stati in length, width, and height. Now, they have their stati calculators handy. You can get some you know, conversion there. 
What we know is that a statite, 12,000 statite is about 1,500 miles, okay? 1,500 miles is the distance between Washington, D.C. and Denver. So you have length, width, height, 1,500 miles in each direction. So this place is huge. It's basically like, the si it's, a, it's a cube the size of the moon, approximately, is like what this translates to be. Um, and I came across a calculation that, I mean, don't take any theological value for this whatsoever. It is purely for, just for illustration fun, okay? But somebody did the math and says, you know what, assume, just again, assume there's 40 billion people in heaven. That's a lot of people, right? Just, just assume, 40 billion people in heaven. If there's 40 billion people in heaven, each person will still have a 32-acre plot to call their own in heaven, right? 32 acres. And I know some of you are like, 32 acres, that's city living. Like, Jesus, I'm going to need at least 1,000, you know? I mean, I don't know. The point is, it is huge. And the other thing is that, we, that we know is it is more beautiful than anything that we can possibly imagine. Verse 11, it says, It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. And then verse 18, it says, The wall was made of jasper, the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth barrel, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. And so here is the point here. As you look at the description in verse 11, it says, And its brilliance was like that of, okay? Is heaven literally a place paved with gold? I have no idea, right? That's not the point here, is that John was trying to describe this place in the most beautiful way that he could possibly imagine. He's like, this place is incredible. How can I describe its beauty? And he's talking about the most precious things that they know about, these precious stones, precious jewels, precious you know, gold, all these wonderful, precious things. That's why he's using these terms to describe heaven, so he can understand. It's, it's, it's the best I can describe it is this place is incredible using the things that I can use to describe it. Um, the other things we see quickly are in uh, verse 22. I'm sorry, I want to go back. I'll grab something. Verse 11 starts with, it's shown with the glory of God. Really what he could have said there is shown with the glory of God, period. Like, that's, that's the important part that matters. It doesn't matter that it's like gold. It doesn't matter it's like emerald. It doesn't matter like thing. It's this place shines with the glory of God, and that is the most incredible thing that we can possibly even imagine. We see some other things. Is in verse 22, it says there's no temple because, again, God is dwelling here. We don't need a temple. God is with us. Verse 23 says there's no sun or moon because of the glory of God lights this place up. Uh, chapter 22, verse 2 said there's a tree of life that bears fruit presumably for us to eat. And then there's verse 6 uh, says there's a river of water, river of living water for us to drink. And this begs the question of, like, what are we going to do in heaven, right? I mean, what are we going to do in this crazy, beautiful, awesome place? And the question is, I don't know, you know. Are we going to play golf and go for hikes and do yoga and all the things that make us happy in this world? I, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I have no idea. I hope if we play golf, I finally get rid of my hook. I'm hoping that my glorified body can hit a ball straight, but I don't know for sure, okay? Nobody knows. And if there was one theme of all of these questions, or all these things that I've said, is I've, I've said the phrase a lot, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, okay? And the reason for this is the next part, which is the why. 
Like, why does God choose to tell us some of these things, to give us these descriptions about what heaven is like, but not tell us others? Why do we know, like, the streets are paved with gold, but we don't know exactly what we're going to do? Like, why, why did God choose to reveal some things to us and not others? And, I mean, and trust me, like, I studied this a lot this week, and I feel like I know a tiny, 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 tiny bit about this place. I have more questions than answers still. But the point here is, is that we aren't supposed to have all the answers when it comes to heaven. That's not the point of why God chose to reveal some of these things to us. That's not what these verses are for. And so a lot of people steer away from the book of Revelation. And they do it because, one, it's confusing. But, two, there's all this, like, doom and gloom and destruction. And it's a, it's a, people think it's a scary book, right? The book of Revelation is a scary book to read. But I want to propose something to you this morning. And that is this, is that I don't think the book of Revelation is a scary book. I think the book of Revelation is a book of hope. Okay? And here's why I say that, is that when John wrote the book of Revelation, the early church was going through incredible persecution, incredible persecution. And do you know what allowed them to triumph in the face of that persecution? Is they had a hope for tomorrow. They said, I don't care what happens in this world. I don't care what this world brings me. I'm looking forward to then. The now doesn't matter. I'm going to serve God, and whatever happens, happens, because I have the hope in tomorrow. One commentator put it this way. He said, the Bible teaches that our hope is not in heaven per se, but in resurrection. Our hope is not that we will escape the earth and fly away like spacemen. It is that God will renew the earth and put it back the way that it should be. See, right after Paul tells us about our glorified bodies in 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Let nothing move you. And so here's the message of the book of Revelation, is that this world is really hard. There's sadness in the world, there's sickness in this world, there's brokenness in the world, there's injustice, there's violence, there's all these terrible things, and it's going to get even worse. But here is our eternity. Revelation 21 verse 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. No more tears, no more death, no more pain, no more sickness. The old is gone. I have made everything new. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. You see, God gave us these pictures in Revelation for this one point. He wanted us to know the end of the story. He wanted us to know the end of the story. And here's the most amazing thing about all this, is the end of the story looks a whole lot like the beginning of the story. God created creation, and people dwelt in God's presence in the garden, in this perfect place, perfect people dwelt with God. Sin entered the world, sin separated us from God. But in the end... Again, people and God are going to be dwelling together in a perfect place. The beginning and the end look a lot like the same.
So let nothing move you. This is what is waiting for you. He says, trust my plan for you. When you're fighting sickness, let nothing move you. If you're struggling in a relationship, let nothing move you. When you feel defeated or you feel like, I just can't go on, let nothing move you. When you're hurting because of the loss of a loved one, let nothing move you. When you're staring death right in the face, let nothing move you because we have hope. And here's the catch, though. If Christianity to you is all about a ticket to get to this place, you're sorely missing the point. Because right after this in 1 Corinthians 15, this is how Paul concludes the whole thing about glorified bodies. This is what he says. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. And so if you go back to the timeline that I showed you, right after the ascension, you know what the last thing that Jesus told his disciples was? We have this great exchange in Acts 1. So Jesus is sitting with his disciples, and Jesus tells them, hey, don't leave Jerusalem until this Holy Spirit comes to you, which is my gift to you. And one of the disciples says, um, he says, uh, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Like what he was saying here is, hey, you know, the whole death, resurrection thing, like that was pretty cool. I'm like, okay, I'll give you that, Jesus. But you know, are you going to go be the Messiah that we thought you were going to be? Are you going to go restore the kingdom of Israel? Okay, and this is what Jesus says in response. He says, look, or I'm sorry, he says this. It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And right after that, Jesus ascends into heaven, okay? And you know what it says the disciples did? They were standing there looking at heaven. They're standing up looking there. Where'd he go? And it says an angel came to them and says, why are you standing looking at heaven? He's going to come back the same way that he went. And the message here is this. Is that Jesus says, while I'm going, you are going to be my witnesses. You are going to be my representatives here on earth. Don't just stand there and look at heaven. Get to work. Go be my witnesses in, the, in this earth. And that is a great application for all of this. Is Jesus says, literally, while I'm going, you are going to meet my body here on earth. Until the new heaven and new earth, we are here, and the church is the closest thing this world is going to have to heaven. In that world, there will be no more sadness, there will be no more pain, no more injustice, no more hunger, no more orphans, none of these things in heaven. But in this world, we will have sadness. In church, it is our job to take care of the brokenhearted in this world until that day comes. In this world, we will have pain, but church, it is our job to take care of the people who are having pain until that world comes. This world, there will be darkness, but church, it is our job to be the light of the world until the day that Jesus comes. So here's the message of heaven. I think it all comes down to this point. is for believers, heaven gives us a hope for tomorrow. But until then, Believers are the hope of the world for today. Heaven gives us a hope for tomorrow, but until then, believers are the hope of the world today. God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This earth can never be heaven. It can be almost heaven, right? The song, I mean, never mind. This earth can never be heaven. But if we can make it look even a little bit like heaven while we're here, then we're completing the work of Jesus until he comes back. That's our mission. We have a great hope, so let's be a great hope. Let's pray.
Father, thank you, Lord, uh, for our hope and what comes at the end, God. And it's so reassuring to know that in the end you are on the throne and that we are with you in paradise, God, and that we are with you and sin is not a part of our lives anymore and that we are with you and celebrating and worshiping you in your presence for the rest of, our, for the rest of eternity, God. Lord, I thank you for that message of hope that it brings to us, God. I pray also specifically, Lord, for folks that are in here and folks that are going to watch this online that um, they don't know the answer to that question, God, whether my name is in the book of life, Lord. And I pray this morning, God, that you just work in their spirits, Lord, and help compel them to answer that question, God, so that they know today, Lord, that they can have their name in the book of life and they can spend eternity with you, God. We're so thankful for your son, and we can't wait to spend eternity with you and with him in heaven, God. All these things in his name. Amen.